The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is Mark 9. And for six days Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain led by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified, and a cloud cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one risen from from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with Contempt, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they didn't did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Stanley Rhodes and Mac. It's great to have people, um, even from home that are participating in our service, and uh, it's so good. They did such a great job. I love how they all broke it up uh, as brothers, and uh, we're able to do that without punching one another, that my, you know, like my boys would. Um, but, you know, when I was little, gosh, I remember, um, I remember when I was, you know, their age, and I was really thinking about God and questions. One of the things I, I, I used to pray before I really, you know, in sixth grade is when I can say I, actually became a Christian or identified with my relationship with Jesus. And, but before then, I really was praying, and I, I would often pray, God, if you're real, if you really are who you say you are, I will wake up in the morning and there'll be a piece of gold on my nightstand. And I was like, I prayed that over and over and over. I know it's kind of goofy, but I was like, God, if you, and what, I have no, I don't know why I wanted gold. Like, I don't, if you even asked me now, I'd be like, I don't know. It wasn't like a, I love gold kind of moment, you know. Um, I, I, I just kind of was like, God, if you, would, if you really are who you say you are, I'll wake up and I'll have gold there. And I'll really know that you're God. You know, like that sounds pretty reasonable, right? <laughs> but, you know, like the older I got, um, the more I've realized that I do that with other things. The, the older I've gotten, the more I realize I, I, I want God to show up. That's really it. It was really less, I mean, yeah, it was about the gold. A lot of it was like, God, are you really, like, can you really show me that you are God? 
And then I'll really listen. And then my faith will really grow. And then, you know, don't you have those moments? Maybe you've had them when you were younger. Maybe you have them right now. Maybe there are moments where you're waking up, first thing you think of in the morning is something that has just burdened you, be it a week, a year. And you just go, God, will you just show up? If you do this, I know you will be God. I'll really listen. And we may not say it sounds childish at first, but that isn't it the depth of our hearts? Isn't that what we really want God to do? Is show up. You know what's incredible here? We, we just got to hear a passage where God actually does that for them. Like he actually shows himself as glorious. Peter, James, and John get to see Jesus. They, they have just a week ago in this passage, transpired about a week, literally. It was kind of amazing that we're actually doing it this way because about a week ago, literally in the passage, is when they first said, and Jesus goes, who do people say that I am? And they said, you know, you're the Christ. And he began to explain what that really meant. A week later, he shows them, he shows up and they get to hear, like they not only get to see Jesus in glory, but they get to see two of the biggest figures of their faith, even growing up as Jewish boys, Elijah and Moses. It's like, here's the Jesus storybook Bible right in front of him. Like you, you, there's, like you open it up and you see these like pictures. And at the beginning of Jesus storybook Bible at Sinai Lloyd-Jones wrote, you can, she actually has a page at the very beginning. It lists all the, these people of faith and has their name below them in this little cartoon. But they actually got to see that. Can you imagine? How amazing would that be? And they really get to experience that. But here's what's interesting. Even in that moment, Peter trips up in awkwardness, doesn't he? See, the book of Mark is actually written from Mark traveling with Peter and him receiving his memoirs. So this is Peter recounting another event where he speaks of himself. And he even writes in here, and, and Mark says, that uh, in, in this verse, and I'm laughing because I love this, how honest, um, in verse um, six, it says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter even, even gives him the note of, I had no idea what I was supposed to say. Can you imagine that event? Isn't that what we want? We want God to show up. This is what he's getting to do right here. And what we're supposed to see in this passage is how does actually God show up for us now? How has he already been here? This is where we're gonna go today. Is how do you and I know not just the one event, we want that one moment, even if he would send an angel just to tell us, just give me something, God, to give me assurance, tell me what's going on. Do you know we have actually something more sure than that, that this passage is pointing to? Something more sure than even those three disciples had when they actually saw Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. We have something more sure. We're gonna see what that is today. So there are two things here we're gonna look at. The first is the presence of Jesus. What does it mean to actually be in the presence of Jesus? And the second thing is, what does it mean to listen to Jesus? And I'm just gonna say outright as somebody who's been looking at this passage, this has been really fun for me to look at again. Uh, this passage, if I'm just being transparent with you. God has really encouraged me just from looking at a passage I've preached before, I've seen before, but to actually know that I have so many of the moments in my life where I'm like, God, will you show up? He really shows how he has never left. 
You know, um, from time to time, I listen to uh, This American Life. I don't know if you ever listen to podcast. podcasts. Anyway, I was just talking about this with some friends yesterday. You know, you used to listen to podcasts a lot when you drive or in transit. Well, now, I mean, my podcast listening you know, has gone down. I used to listen to like a litany of them. And I just, I'm not traveling as much. So I don't hear as many. So I'm trying to fit them in. I used to listen to This American Life a little more. And oftentimes what I really liked about This American Life are the stories within it. It's really, really good stories. One of them was fascinating to me. It was called Digging Up the Past. And it was this man from the 1800s named Henrik Schleiermann who was absolutely obsessed with finding the, the lost city of Troy, you know, from the Iliad, Iliad you know. Uh, many of us probably have seen the movie Troy with Brad Pitt. A little different, Brad Pitt was not in Troy, you know, um, but that's really like what he was looking for. He had an obsession with finding the city. And so he set out to find it. And oftentimes when cities where it used to be, cities were built on top of cities. So they're, you know, a city burns down and they rebuild, right? So as an archaeologist, he began digging and he began finding layers. And in his mind, he is searching. It said he was looking and looking. He couldn't, he, what he was looking for, as they said, was to look for some sort of indication like gold, silver, some sort of wonderful uh, essence of the city of Troy that's so glorious, so held up over the centuries, even put in one of the longest standing books, the Iliad, and he just kept digging. And as they, he dug, he kept going through layer after city, after city layer, after city layer. And finally he found the bottom and he was so disheartened that he never found the gold. <laughs> he never found what he, he was looking for. And in fact, the irony wasn't just that he hit the bottom and he found Troy. It was while he was digging he went past the city of Troy and kept looking for the gold and silver that he was looking for. He missed it. He actually hit Troy and went past it. And I can tell you, that reminds me so much of how the Christian life has felt over the centuries for, for, and even discussed and even over my decades of years that I've been a Christian. It's been talked about in such experiential terms. Like there's this moment where you, be, you know, even the testimony thing, I mean, some of us grew up in a, in a maybe in a, a background or, or maybe even come to church and you're hoping to get an experience and it's sold in this, like you have this big encounter with God and no, 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 you know. And, and sometimes when we're digging to find what it means to have a relationship with God, we just go right past the reality of it because we're hoping for something to lift us out. In fact, if you're here, maybe, maybe you're, you know, look, learning what Christianity is. I, I've often talked to many people who are not Christians and they don't really see the difference. They're kind of like, why would I become a Christian? Because I don't want to lose myself in some sort of thing. There's this, this idea that if you become a Christian, if you follow Jesus, you're kind of like losing your mind a little bit. <laughs> and you're kind of lifted up above everything and you don't really come, come in contact with reality. You dig through it. You miss the reality. And see, if you're really following Jesus, this event that happens to them is they, they can easily, and even see this with Peter's reaction, miss the actual presence of Jesus for the experience of him. To, to be in contact with him doesn't necessarily mean you're in relationship or actually love him. 
though your affections may be stirred for him, as some theologians have said, doesn't mean you actually have a relationship with him. So this is where this is going. I think it's interesting. Jesus took them, it says in verse two, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, which he often did. If you read the accounts of the gospels, these three disciples were often taken aside at crucial moments in Jesus' life, crucial moments of ministry. And he took them up, it says, not just on a mountain, it's a high mountain by themselves. And this is an indicator, particularly, of moments that have actually happened throughout the Bible. And maybe you've heard that, that token thought, like, you know, you had a mountain, mountaintop experience. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard that before in circles, Christian circles. But sometimes that's discussed and it's drawn from the Bible where oftentimes on high mountaintops, there were these experiences, beautiful places of worship where God encountered his people. And of all people to meet with Jesus in this moment are Elijah and Moses, two of which actually met with God on high mountains. Sinai, Moses met with Sinai, and this is, uh, we're actually gonna go through the book of Exodus after Mark, which I'm really excited about. Uh, so we'll see some of that, this mountaintop uh, picture. But then also Elijah, who met with God on the mountain of Horeb, and both of which had an incredible experience of connecting with God. They heard his voice. They were able to talk with him. They were terrified in a sense. There was this ominous you know, presence of God and yet they, they felt, and they were also there as mediators between God and the people. In fact, the description here is that it says transfigured and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. No one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared Elijah and Moses and they're talking with Jesus. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine being one of the disciples and there's Moses and Elijah and they, they've never seen them, by the way. It's not like they had photos of them or archives, but they could recognize because of what they were talking about. And they heard the conversation of Jesus with Moses and Elijah. What an unbelievable experience. And they're hearing it and they're taking it in. And all of a sudden this cloud surrounds them and they start having what the Old Testament experiences talk about, the Shekinah glory of God. It's where God's presence actually came down and the cloud symbolized God was there. But here's... A couple things that are hugely different, though, about this experience than those in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when Moses and Elijah encountered God, one of which where Moses went up and said, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory so I can then go down and be with the people. God said, okay, I'll show you my glory, but you have to be hidden in a rock. (laughs) So he actually hides Moses, covers this cleft where Moses was hidden with his hand, passes by, and Moses gets to see what's called his back. And the glory of God's radiance, even his back, is so much so that it fills his face and he goes down the mountain to see the people and they are scared of Moses because they see his face. And for days, he has to wear a veil over his face, Moses does, so that the the radiant glory that he received doesn't scare or turn the people away. But here's what's different about this. It says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white. No one, and he transfigured before them his clothes radiant white. This is almost like the first few chapters of Revelation is what we're seeing. 
But it's so intense that the word transfigured wasn't that he was reflecting glory. It actually means it came from inside out. See, Jesus wasn't coming and encountering God. He was actually the one transfigured within that moved outside that enveloped Moses, Elijah, and all those disciples. See, the glory comes from Jesus. It's from his actual presence. It's not an experience. It's one that he's showing. He's showing who he really is. I remember when I was younger and I was eating with my parents out and, and there was a building um, on fire like where we're eating. And, and I went outside. It was such an unbelievable experience. It was close to downtown and I lived in Dallas. It was close to downtown Dallas. And this, this, this almost home business kind of structure was on fire. And I remember in t- the intensity of not just the brightness, but not even being able to cross the street to actually watch it as everyone was standing outside just in amazement by it because the heat was so intense. I actually had to move myself from where I was and behind a car because the heat was so intense against my body. I could feel the heat through my clothing, even against my face because the intensity was so much And you see they're terrified. They're not terrified just because, and this is where Peter's awkwardness comes in. They're not terrified because the cloud, they're terrified because of what Jesus is showing himself to be. His intensity is so much, it overwhelms them. It overwhelms them because the glory is coming from within him. You know, and then Peter says something really interesting. He says, and I, I, I kind of titled this part the Peter and the Three Tents. Sounds like a funny, you know, it sounds like something you'd hear in a, in a, in a Sunday school lesson or something, some sort of funny joke. You know, Peter, remember Peter and the Three Tents? But he's literally in an awkward moment. And I love that he is honest enough to say, I don't know what to say. So I said, let's make three tents. Why, is, why, why three tents? Why tents? So tents were what he was wanting them to do is say, let's, let's set up what was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And what they would do, there was a feast every year where they would create what were booths, these tents, where they would live in for worship for a week. And what Peter's wanting to do is set up monuments or a place for Jesus, for Elijah, and Moses, all three of them in equity to be there so they can worship. But what is Peter actually doing? Because he didn't know what what he was saying. He's wanting to try and make the experience permanent. He's missing what Jesus is actually showing him. He's missing the fact, by wanting to set up these three tents, he's, he's missing the fact that, that I, I want this experience to be permanent. I want to be here. And he didn't know what else to say, but he was enveloped in it. And, and even by under, saying, let's make three tents, he's missing the fact that Jesus isn't showing himself as equal as Moses and Elijah. He's showing him at himself as the God of Moses and Elijah. Two figures that represent the entirety of the Old Testament. And poor guy and his awkwardness. And he's trying to say something. He's trying to, to speak to them because he sees their presence and he's overwhelmed by it. 
He's overwhelmed by the experience. I remember when I was a kid in Dallas growing up and the Dallas Cowboys were huge. Whether you love them or hate them, they are America's team, by the way. Um, And I remember being in a place and seeing uh, Tony Dorsett, who at the time, this may date me a little bit, but at the time before uh, Emmitt Smith and all of them was the running back. He was the running back that they won all these other uh, 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 Super Bowls. Well, he was in a, a store and I remember being with my mom really young and them introducing me. And it wasn't enough for me to be introduced. I was like, hey, can I have your phone number and address so we can like talk? And my mom was like, oh, Stacy, don't, no, you don't do that. And he, he just looked at me kind of funny, kind of like, no. <laughs> you know? And I was like, I remember looking at that now. I was like, oh, I didn't know. I just want to hang out with you, you know? You just kind of, I was just kind of starstruck. I was like, can, can I get close? Can we hang out? And he's like, no, get away, weird kid, you know? But it was one of those moments. And we know that, especially in Nashville, where we live in a place where we're trained when we see someone of notoriety, you better not act awkward. Because here in Nashville, stars, they're like us, right? But, but, but really, there is this reality to all of us, though. We are afraid of the awkwardness. Here's what's incredible about this passage. It isn't just that, that Peter's wanting to keep the experience because he's trying in some sense, and this is what we tend to do with our relationship with God, is we want to hold on to the experience, but an experience doesn't last. Isn't this why so often you and I feel like when we come to church and we sing songs and we do those things and you just feel kind of like rote? Maybe this is your first time back into church in a long time or even watching because you just felt like, man, I just don't, I don't know how I feel about God. And that's what we use a lot, feel. Because we so put into our relationship with God how we feel rather than what it's like to be with him. Can you imagine any relationship like that? That if for one moment your friends just got tired of feeling good around you, that they were like, "Mm, we're just not be friends with you. Think of that on God's level. But then also think of the freedom. Here's what's funny. Peter says this, and Jesus doesn't correct him. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, Moses, and one for Elijah. But he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. What does Jesus do? He accepts his awkward worship. There's a little thing in here, and I think Peter probably is drawing out for us, is that Peter is writing in. He's talking to Mark. He's saying, here's something I want you to write down. How awkward I was and how Jesus stayed. My awkwardness did not determine Jesus's transfiguration. My awkwardness did not determine my relationship with him. And I'll tell you, I think so often We feel like we need to be in a certain emotional place when we come to church and we're in a relationship with God in order for it to be a relationship. But he doesn't want you to bring yourself in here. And even even then, yeah, I know the whole screen was messing up. It was messing up for you at home. It's all awkward. We're all sitting there like, do we sing? Do we listen? What do we do? I don't know how you handle those awkward moments. Sometimes I actually really like them because it makes us a little more aware. 
What'd you do in that moment? What if in those moments we didn't just necessarily look at and wait for the song lyrics to come back up, which we need those. But what if in those moments we're more aware of, you know what? Is it okay for me to be awkward before God? Is it okay for me to, maybe even if the lyrics are up there and my heart is not engaged, I was just talking to somebody this week, other people in ministry, by the way, we feel this too, that feel oftentimes that we come and we're like, I just, oh man, where's my connection? Where's, where do I feel? I feel distance or I feel disconnected or I feel dislocated. Praise God that he wants us. He doesn't bend his worship to our worship of not being awkward. He invites us to it. And he does this even by saying, <clears throat> by how we listen to him. It's not just his presence, but there are three parts of this listening in here that are interesting. The first is with Moses and Elijah. When it's crazy to think about, like the disciples got to sit there for a moment and actually witness a conversation that maybe some of us have even said, what would it be like to talk to this Bible figure right now and ask him what happened? He's actually getting to discuss that conversation and what are they doing? Moses and Elijah aren't talking to him necessarily and instructing him, they're listening to him. See, that's what's amazing about this is, is not in Malachi 4, which is the book of the Bible, the prophetic book, right before Matthew, right before the New Testament, close to that, in that book, it talks about the law of Moses and the second coming of Elijah. And what we're seeing is not a reincarnation of Moses and Elijah and them just kind of hanging out like Jesus did a seance. This is actually the people, the embodiment, Moses and Elijah having a conversation and listening to Jesus. Luke's account of this very narrative brings it out. It says, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. We actually get to hear, what, what are they talking about? Mark didn't give us all that detail, but Luke in his way of um, actually, who was much like a reporter getting his insight, asked a little deeper and we hear, they were talking about Jesus's departure. The word departure means exodus in Greek. Here's what Jesus is doing. This is insane. Jesus is actually getting to instruct Moses and Elijah about the real true exodus that's about to happen with him. That all of their history, <clears throat> all of the exodus that happened with Moses, I mean, the figure of Moses himself, <clears throat> excuse me, the character who led them through the Red Sea, who led them through the wilderness, who was there when the manna was from heaven, all of those moments is now hearing about the culmination of the exodus happening in Jesus. Elijah, who is one of the greatest, if not the greatest prophet here, representing both the law, Moses, and prophets, Elijah, is saying all of the fulfillment of the Old Testament is in Christ. And you know what else I bet they were listening to? that if you read about Moses and Elijah, you read about the real struggles. Moses really struggled with stuttering. He had a speech impediment. 
He really struggled with self-doubt. He really struggled a lot with his own self-image and his worthiness. And don't you know that as he's sitting there listening to Jesus' departure, what's being shorn up isn't just Moses going, history is being tied together. That's awesome and unbelievable. But he's also hearing my story is being written and redeemed together. Elijah, who suffered with immense depression. If you read about the, the events of Elijah's life, his depression is overwhelms him at times. And don't you know now, Elijah is hearing, seeing, just like Moses, the assurance and encouragement of the depths of depression where the darkness can take, would take him and now seeing the redemptive light that his depression will not be his end. See, it's not just history that's being written here. It's their, their history too that's being written. How beautiful that your story, it's not just that Jesus is transfigured. Don't you want him to come <clears throat> and show himself and prove himself? Isn't he showing right now through Moses and Elijah who are listening that their story is within? They're listening. The disciples are listening. Even when they stepped down, look, as they were coming down the mountain, <clears throat> he charged them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man risen, had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves. You can imagine the disciples. They're like, what do we do with this? And then questioning the rising from the dead. So they asked him in this way, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, why are they asking this? It's because in their mind, as good Jewish people who know about the resurrection, in the Old Testament, Elijah was gonna come first and then there was gonna be a sweeping resurrection for all people. But Jesus is talking about a different resurrection. They have their theology correct, but in misplaced in application. Because it's not just about their resurrection, it's about Jesus's resurrection. See, the transfiguration, how does it help them? The transfiguration helps them in their moment because they don't understand it until it says Jesus actually resurrected that they understood it. But what the transfiguration was, was a hope, a reality that Jesus's resurrection is what it is. So that after Jesus resurrected, after he came out of the grave, they looked back and they said, This is our hope, not only that Jesus has conquered the grave, but he will come again. You see, the transfiguration for us, this passage is so instrumental to our faith because it lifts us up, up out. It teaches us, it lends us to not just leave our suffering, but to enter into it until he comes again. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote on this. He's a, a martyr of the 20th century. He wrote some on this passage in in a book called Discipleship and the Cross. Listen to what he says about this. Before Jesus leads his disciples into suffering, humiliation, disgrace, and disdain, he summons them and shows himself to them as the Lord and God's glory. Before the disciples must descend with Jesus into the abyss of human guilt, malice, and hatred, Jesus leads them up to a high mountain from which they are to receive help. Before Jesus' face is beaten and spat upon, before his cloak is torn and splattered with blood, the disciples 
to see him in his divine glory. His face shines like the face of God and light is the garment he wears. It is a great blessing that the same disciples who are going to experience Jesus' suffering in Gethsemane are now allowed to see him as the transfigured son. See, the transfiguration for them in that specific moment was an encouragement. It was a lifting. It was a moment of assurance. And even they didn't get it until the resurrection. Because it also showed them that God's triumphant nature. But what it is for us is it ties itself to God in the resurrection, to the cross to say, Jesus' glory is for real. And here's how we know this. He says, listen to him. Here's what's amazing. It says in this passage, they heard a voice. And the voice said this, this is my beloved son, listen to him. You see what is insane about this that I think is amazing is that Peter would pick this back up and talk about this event with us with those people who never had even a moment of connection with it. And here's what he'd say in 2 Peter 2, no, 2 Peter 1, verse 16 through 19. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When we received the honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He's quoting that what he heard. And then he says this, but we ourselves heard this voice and was born from heaven and we were with him on that holy mountain and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Do you hear what Peter's saying? That we have something actually more sure than what he received on the mountain. Do, do you see what, what this table is? Is actually you're tasting the conversation that Elijah and Moses had. You're tasting the reality that Jesus doesn't need to just appear and show himself to show you the assurance. You're seeing that the assurance has never left you. It's always been there. He keeps you. He loves you. And it never departed from you or me. All the things that we want him to take care of, in fact, he has addressed and is currently addressing, even if we still can't see it. Isn't that what the point of the transfiguration is? As Bonhoeffer said beautifully, it lifts them up out of it in order for them to come back into the reality, not to escape it, but to know the reality of who's the one above all of those things and yet gives his body and blood to sacrifice for it. Who's the one that is the taste of the proclamation of his death? And then what? If we know he's died, and this is what they realized, right? That this is a taste of what is to come. This isn't a taste of just what is. It's a taste for us to have continued hope and faith, not in the experience of what this tastes like to us, but in the presence of the Lord Jesus by faith. That's what this table is. 
And I want to encourage you as you come to this table, not to come to it thinking that this makes you a Christian or the experience of having Christ's body and blood does it, but it's that you actually engage with the presence of the Lord Jesus by faith. And that is in the moment that you and Elijah and Moses and Peter and James and John, we sit together with them and have every assurance fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Let's stand together.